How are you doing today? Good. It was at the end of January that I gave a message from the book of Ruth on when I am weak, then I am strong. And I'm not sure I can tell you all the reasons why, tell myself all the reasons why, but I cannot seem to shake the idea of discovering strength in our weakness. Maybe it's out of my own weakness. I'm sure it is. Uh, maybe it's from uh, talking with so many people who feel like they're in a place of weakness. But how many of you know God's word is still true, that it is in our weakness that he is made strong? Are you thankful for that today? So I, um, I have something to share with you today. It um, might be just a little bit heavy. I'm going to ask you to um, give me your undivided attention and keep the room steady and still, please, so I can deliver what I believe the Lord would have for us today. And my message is entitled, Let the Weak Say, I Am Strong. Good morning, Balcony. How are you today? Good, good. Glad you're there. Take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 59. Psalm 59. Psalm 59. <clears throat> the psalm was written at a time in David's life when the anointing upon him was no longer held in awe. We do recognize that there was a season in David's life when the anointing on him was obviously held in awe. As he would simply uh, walk by, people would speak of him. And the presence of God that would come upon his life, they would talk about the fact that his worship alone could drive devils away from the king of Israel at that time. The fact that he could stand against a giant when no one in the whole nation had the courage to do that. Scripture tells us that his name was being proclaimed, his name was being sung everywhere. But a season did come when his anointing was no longer held in awe. And even his public appearance and public presence was no longer appreciated. So in studying the background of this Psalm 59, if I'm honest with you today, it feels to me very much like the church of Jesus Christ in America today, where the former anointings, the presence, the glory, the awakenings, the great history, the beautiful songs sung in our churches, the wonderful presence of God and his blessing which came as a result of uh, the honoring of Christ and honoring the word of God is no longer held in esteem in much of this country anymore. Am I telling you the truth? And the public presence of Christ and his people is no longer appreciated. And I'm quite sure that you know that because you live and work in this world. And you understand how dangerous it can be to even ascribe today to a biblical worldview. It's not appreciated at all. What used to be called the glory of God is now referred to as bigotry and hatred and other labels and names which have no basis in reality whatsoever. I'm going to ask you to keep your Bibles open to our text in Psalm 59, but, but give me the privilege and the opportunity to further set the stage for this psalm by taking you back to what it was that motivated David to write this Psalm 59. And I'm going to read, you can stay there in, in the Psalm 59, but I'm going to read from 1 Samuel 19 for just 
uh, for just a little bit. And you can follow the screen as, as, as I read it to you. And I read this to you to let you see what's behind the psalm. You will understand the psalm so much better and what's being said and why it's being said when you see the story that's behind it. War broke out again. And David led his troops against the Philistines. He attacked them with such fury that they all ran away. So here is the season in David's life where the anointing is still on his life as it has always been. And I do want us to see that in very much the same way, in the church of Jesus Christ, though we may have lost sight of it, there is no diminishing of the anointing of God upon his church today. The presence of God is still with you. The presence of God is still with me. It's still with us as a people. Going on further in 1 Samuel. But one day when Saul was sitting at home with spear in hand, the tormenting spirit from the Lord suddenly came upon him. As David played his harp, Saul hurled his spear at David. But David dodged out of the way. And leaving the spear stuck in the wall, he fled and escaped into the night. Then Saul sent troops to watch David's house. They were told to kill David when he came out the next morning. But Michael, David's wife, warned him, If you don't escape tonight, you will be dead by morning. And so she helped him climb out through a window, and he fled and escaped. It is David's fleeing and escaping that will become critical to our message this morning. But I'm going to ask you to give me a couple of minutes to take a sidestep here and say something that is really not part of the whole of the message, and it's this. If you read the rest of that 1 Samuel uh, chapter 19 and what's going on, and you understand anything about David's wife, Michael, first of all, she's the daughter of Saul, his enemy, <clears throat> so he's fighting his father-in-law. What you'll find out when she's trying to help him escape is what she does is some trickery. She puts in, uh, some versions will call it a dummy in the bed. Most versions and any research will tell you it's an idol that she put in the bed to make it look like David is asleep in the bed. She takes goat's hair and puts it like a wig on top and fluffs it all up so that when Saul's men came to kill him, as they were asked and assigned to do by Saul, she could, it looked like he was in, in bed there. And then finally what happens is they come and they tell Saul, well, he's, he's in bed sick. That's what his wife says. So they said, well, go get him in his sick bed. And when they lift up the sick bed to bring it to Saul, they find out that, that he's not really in there. Can I just say it's one of the oldest tricks in the book? <laughs> but here's what struck me. We're talking about David, the man after God's own heart. The man so dearly loved by God, God favors and blesses and anoints and favors and blesses and anoints again and again. What is his wife doing with idols? And then she lied over and over. So here's the part that, that, I, that I want to say. You may be the one in your marriage who's following God and your spouse is not. I know men who are really going hard after God, but their spouse is rather cool to the things of the Lord. 
Now, granted, more often than not, it's the wife who's going hard after God, and you know what I mean by that, really seeking the Lord with all of her heart, and her husband is um, less interested in spiritual things. That may be you. And I know that for some of you, you have been discouraged when it felt like you were not equally yoked in that sense and your fervor for the things of the kingdom. We know the scripture tells us, be ye not unequally yoked. Don't marry an unbeliever. But I've seen so many people who felt like they were bearing, either the wife or the husband, bearing all the spiritual weight for their family. But I want you to know, you're not the first one to deal with that. Look at King David. Everything within him was going after, uh, after God. And we see proof of that time and time again. And here he's got a wife who's lying. She still has idols in the house. Now granted, she's trying to help him escape. We get all that. But she's obviously not bearing the spiritual weight. Becky and I have a friend that we saw just a few years ago, a pastor in the Northeast. And he is fervently carrying on the work of the Lord and, and pastoring very powerfully and very, very effectively in his city. His wife is mentally unstable and she's not even been seen by the congregation in now probably 12 to 15 years. And yet he faithfully serves. And when we began to discover what the situation was, he said, I took a vow before the Lord that I would be faithful to my wife until she died. Now, is she of help to him? Is she uh, dangerous to him at times? Yes, he knows what that is. But I just wanna say that some of the greatest men of God have had to deal with a spouse. Some of the greatest women of God have had to deal with a spouse who was not bearing the same weight that they were spiritually. If you're in that situation today, I want you to be encouraged. God's eye is, up, is upon you. His hand is upon you. His presence is upon you. He sees your faithfulness even in the midst of what you're facing. Do not give up, even though you're tempted to give up. I threw that in extra. There's no extra charge for that today. So Michael helps her husband climb out through a window, and he fled and escaped. Keep that in mind. Here's David. Get that picture. He's fleeing and escaping. So with all of this that I've read from 1 Samuel, we have the context and the background of the writings of David in Psalm 59. So let's, let's go back. Let's read our text now, Psalm 59. Rescue me from my enemies, O God. Protect me from those who come to destroy me. Rescue me from these criminals. Save me from these murderers. This is his psalm that he's writing as a result of what happened in 1 Samuel. They have set an ambush for me. Fierce enemies are out there waiting, Lord, though I have not sinned or offended them. I have done nothing wrong, and yet they prepare to attack me. In other words, here's this sudden uh, rising up of a society in David's time looking to find fault, looking to take his life, not because of any wrong he has done, but just for the fact that he was the anointed of God. That was the only reason they had. So David says, wake up and see what's happening to me, O God. O Lord God of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, wake up and punish those hostile nations. Show no mercy to wicked traitors. They come out at night snarling like vicious dogs as they prowl the streets. Listen to the filth that comes from their mouths. Their words cut like swords. After all, who can hear us, they sneer. But Lord, you laugh at them. You scoff at all the hostile nations. You are my strength. I wait for you to rescue me, for you, O oh God, are my fortress. 
Verse 10, in his unfailing love, my God will stand with me. I want you to say that out loud with me. In his One more time, a little louder. He will what? He will let me look down in triumph on all my enemies. And then David says, don't kill him. For my people soon forget such lessons. I want to go, really? Stagger them, he says. Some versions say scatter, which is probably the truer word. Scatter them with your power and bring them to their knees, O Lord, our shield. Because of the sinful things they say, because of the evil that is that is on their lips. Let them be captured by their pride, their curses, and their lies. Destroy them in your anger. Wipe them out completely. Then the whole world will know that God reigns in Israel. My enemies come out at night. It's interesting he brings this picture again. Snarling like vicious dogs as they prowl the streets. They scavenge for food, but go to sleep unsatisfied. But as for me, don't you love this about David? Pours out his unfiltered heart to God. But as for me, I will sing about your power. Say that word power. I will sing about your power. I hear him going, he's roaring with power and fighting our battles. And every knee shall bow before him. Each morning, he says, I will sing with joy about your unfailing love. For you have been my refuge, a place of safety when I am in distress. Oh, my strength to you, I sing praises. For you, O oh God, are my refuge, the God who shows me unfailing love. Please listen carefully for the next few minutes. America has been a nation of religious freedom. Our laws have been based on the laws of God. We've certainly not been perfect, but we've had a willingness to hear and be corrected when needed. We as a nation have enjoyed a great history of spiritual awakenings. And I cannot help but think of the amazing songs and prayers that have been uttered in this nation for over 400 years. But folks, we need to wake up and realize that we're in a battle. I said, we're in a battle. We are in a battle the likes of which we have never seen before in this nation. Today, you and I are living in a generation where the testimony of Christ through his church is surrounded by those who would take the life of Christ from us if they could. And that's not even debatable. And it's getting worse every day. It's becoming more evil every day. And we find ourselves in a place of asking, God, what can we do? How can we fight against this pervading thought that has come in like a flood, attempting to swallow everything of God, everything that is godly, from the institution of marriage to the definition of family? And we find ourselves in a generation very, very similar to that which the children of Israel were in while in Egypt, our firstborn are being thrown into the rivers of confusion. Gender confusion. Deliberately, I might add. Deliberately, I might add. Confusion about the existence, the very existence of God. 
High school students are being forbidden to pray. And all this and so much more in a nation which was founded on the right of every man, every woman, and every child to worship God according to their conscience. Our university students are being radicalized against both God, certainly the church, and their own country. And it's happening right in front of us. Am I telling you the truth today? And we recognize that we're on the precipice of tipping from what this nation has been for 400 years into a place of unrecognizable godlessness. Bethesda, we're at the tipping point. It's not that it's coming a few years down the road. We're at the tipping point. And God in his mercy is giving us a refuge for just a very short period of time, I believe, to consider our ways. He's doing so to allow us to turn back to God and to begin to pray again and to seek him again and to stop all of our boasting and our bragging and our calling, calling ourselves what we are not and to start agreeing with God by saying, Lord, we have fallen, we have failed, we're not as strong as we like to pretend ourselves to be. And we, have all, and, and we have all of our boasting and bravado and all the big voices that are being raised up in the church. And yet the entire time our nation is sliding more and more and more into darkness. Now David knew his own history. And he knew the power of God. Just as many of us do. We know the power of God. There are people in this room right now under the sound of my voice, who have seen and experienced firsthand the supernatural power of God, doing what only the Lord can do. We know the spiritual awakenings that have swept our country in years past, with hundreds of thousands swept into the kingdom of God. And most all of those awakenings started by some small group of people a humble, small, little motley crew of some kind who were simply willing to pray. People who were concerned about the future that was before them. That was their motivation to pray. I'm concerned about the future that I see. We know that there is and has been a history of godliness in our nation. But in spite of all this, when the threatening came against David... And I hope you see the parallel I'm drawing between David's circumstance and where the church today is. When the threatening came against David, he went into a season of seeking to hide and to preserve himself. And we see much of the church of Jesus Christ today doing the same thing. Many of God's choicest servants are either currently into or going into hiding. They are starting to cave under the social pressure of the day. They are afraid for their own futures. They are afraid because we have not had to be a warrior church in our generation. Some of you grew up in a day and time when there was persecution and you knew what it was to have to be a warrior and to battle in the church of God for its very existence. We have not had to be and we are full of a generation who have not had to be warriors, even prayer warriors, in the kingdom of God in the church today. We've been soft. We've been raised on marshmallows in the house of God. But suddenly, we find ourselves in a battle 
fighting against darkness and seem to have forgotten that there is an armor available to us through Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And many preachers are even caving under the social pressures of this day to redefine things that God is not willing to redefine, to call evil things good and good things evil. God help you if you are a pastor today out there and you are caving to the godlessness of this day. God help you if you are defying the word of God. And I must ask you, how will you fare when you stand one day at the throne of Christ? How will you fare on that day? How will you stand before the very one who says, if you add anything to the word of God or if you remove anything from it, he will remove your place from eternal life. How will you get around that? It was in this place of compromise that David the king eventually ended up standing on the wrong side of the battle. In an effort to preserve himself, he makes an affiliation with the Philistines. And he ends up on the wrong side of the battle against the armies of Israel, against the armies of God. Have you ever been on the wrong side of a battle? I can't even fathom what was in David's mind. Standing to oppose the side on which he once stood. How did David get there other than he was attempting to simply preserve himself? And the questions come to you and me today. Are we willing to acknowledge where we are truly standing? Are we willing to look at it in the face and acknowledge it? And if so, what are we willing to do about it? How far are we willing to go for the sake of the truth? How much of our convenient lifestyle are we willing to relinquish for the sake of doing the right thing, for the sake of righteousness? Are we simply going to live to preserve ourselves in this generation regardless of the battle the church is facing? Is that what we're going to do? Put our, gather our cloaks around us and simply preserve ourselves while the church needs to be battling and fighting for righteousness sake? Or are we going to stand up and rise up and fight for something a little higher than just our comfortable American lifestyle? Let he who has ears hear what the Spirit is saying to the church today. I ask you this. Are your children worth standing up for to protect the truth of God's word to them? Are they worth it? Or are you preserving yourself? Are your children worth going to your knees for and petitioning God to do something that only God can do? The children in our high schools, are they worth fighting for? The children in our colleges, are we willing to leave our comfort zone and begin to stand to ensure that they know the truth of God's word? It was in this place of escape and self-preservation where David found himself, that suddenly, I love the way the Bible used the word suddenly, suddenly the hand of God came upon him again. And the first thing that we see is this. God caused the leaders of the Philistines, whom he now had formed an association with, God caused the leaders to reject him. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Listen to me, church. If you're on the wrong side of the battle, and some of you need to ask yourself today, am I on the wrong side of this battle? If you're on the wrong side of the battle, those dudes you're hanging with won't put up with you for very long. 
for those who are compromising truth for the sake of preserving yourself, this darkened generation will only endure you as long as they have to, and then they will reject you. That's exactly what happened to King David and the men with him. They endured him. They endured his presence. Then eventually, because the grace of God was still on him, he was rejected by the Philistine lords. And he went back to that, which was his hometown, to find out that it had been swallowed up, it had been destroyed and captivated by the enemies of God. Everything was gone. That's David, the great king to be. David, the sweet psalmist of Israel. David, who could drive out demons with the song that God would give him. David, who could take a sling and face a giant. David, who could defeat a bear and a lion now finds himself in a place of weakness. Because of his own compromise, he finds himself in a place where he has no strength to go forward. And the men around him have no strength to go forward. They actually talk of stoning David because they are blaming him for the trouble that's come into their lives and into their homes, their families. But it was in this place of weakness that David turns to prayer again only to find out that God had already answered the prayer that he prayed in Psalm 59. What I'm trying to tell you this morning is that there are some prayers that you prayed a long time ago that you have forgotten about but God has not forgotten, and he's ready to answer them today. You may think that God forgot. You may think, oh, that was a long time ago, another life, another, another place, another season. It, that's over. And you may think it's gone, or it may be gone out of your mind. It is not gone out of God's mind. But David prayed this prayer in Psalm 59 at the precipice of going into this season of trial and difficulty and being intermixed with that which he should have fought against. And it's really when he, when he comes to the end of himself in this place that he begins to pray again only to find out that God really has answered his prayer all along. I know there are people in this room today that you feel so weak you feel like you have no future. You feel like you have no hope. But you have forgotten, dear one, that five or 10 or 15 years ago, you prayed a prayer like this. God, lead me and I will follow you. God, use my life for your glory. And God said, okay, okay. And now there has been a journey since you prayed that prayer in the last 5, 10, 15 years. There's been a journey, and that journey has had some bumps along the way, been a little turbulence, been some rough waters, whatever metaphor you want to use. And somehow because of that journey, you have it in your mind, you have it in your head that God has forgotten. Maybe you even feel like God is fed up with you, that you're not usable in the kingdom of God. 
But let me tell you something today, and I declare this in the name of the Lord because I speak before the Lord. You are as strong today as you were back then when you prayed it, maybe even stronger. You just thought you were strong then. And I'm telling you, we must never, are you listening? We must never, 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 never forget. Every one of us that God uses, it's all grace. It's all grace. You think you've got to bring this to the table. You think you've got to bring that. It's all grace, the grace of God. He does not really need or want your natural ability, sweetheart. He does not even need or want your natural zeal, which you may be really good at. He doesn't need your certificates. He doesn't need your diplomas. He doesn't need anything that we have to accomplish his will and his purposes. What he needs and he's asking for from every one of us under the sound of my voice, he needs a willing vessel, an open heart, and empty hands that come to the throne of God and say, Lord, I don't have a plan. Lord, I don't have any strength, but my God, you've got a plan and you've got the strength of the universe in your hands. And so I offer my body one more time as a living sacrifice for your purposes and I'm asking you to give me your Holy Spirit again. Others may not recognize your your anointing on my life, oh God, but that doesn't matter. Doesn't matter what they recognize, what they don't recognize. Because I'm simply asking you, oh God, Raise me up again. Raise me up again, oh God. Put power in my voice again. Put healing in my hands again. Put light in my eyes again, oh God. Put sound thinking in my mind, but most importantly, God, put courage in my heart. We read it a moment ago, Psalm 59, first part of verse 10. In his unfailing love, my God will stand with me. Would you say it with me? In his unfailing You may have escaped. You may have defected to the wrong side of the battle. You may have totally wimped out. But God in his mercy remembers what you prayed a long time ago. And though you have not been faithful to him, he is going to be faithful to you. David had no idea when he penned those words in Psalm 59 that it was going to be a long journey before he ever saw the fulfillment. But in his weakness, let me bring it to us, in our weakness as a church age, in our time of compromise, in our softness in American religion, in our wrong and sometimes misguided theological focus, where we've turned away from being poured out for the sake of others to using everything in the kingdom of God for ourselves, to preserving ourselves as opposed to yielding our bodies as a living sacrifice for the sake of others, in that place of weakness, the scripture we just read tells us God will meet us again. Somebody say hallelujah. In his unfailing love, he will stand with us. I don't know about you, but I'm undone by the mercy of Jesus. 
I don't think you heard me or understood what I said. I said, I'm undone by the mercy of Jesus. I'm undone by the goodness of the Lord. Teen Challenge sings that I'm restored and made right. He got a hold of my life. I've got Jesus. How could I want more? I am overwhelmed at the mercy of God. In my weakness, in my failures, in everything that I do wrong, God still says, and I've got a plan for you. I heard you pray years ago. I took you serious when you said it. I know your path has been bumpy along the way, but I'm going to fulfill my word in you, and I'm going to be faithful to you. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Because of your unfailing love, you will stand with me, Lord, one more time. Verse 11 reminds us that it is not in our strength, but in our weakness that he will stagger or scatter my enemies by his power. And David's prayer about his enemies is this, verse 11. Don't kill them, for my people soon forget such lessons. Stagger them with your power. Bring them to their, to their knees, O Lord, our shield. Talking about his enemies. Because of the sinful things they say, because of the evil that is on their lips, let them be captured by their pride, their curses, and their lies. I don't know about you, Bethesda, but I am sick and tired of Hollywood. I'm sick and tired of award shows. I'm sick and tired of media, all sides of it. I'm tired of these people, and it has nothing to do with their personal political position. I'm wearied by their pride. I'm wearied by their cursing. They can't speak without cursing anymore, and I'm wearied with their lying. There's no right. There's no wrong. You just simply say whatever you have to say in order to reach whatever dark objective you might have in your heart. But David said, God, don't kill them, but stagger them. Bring them down because they have raised their voices, not against me, against you. They are filled with pride. They live their day to curse and lie. And he's talking about the people who have gathered to take away his life. And you and I are talking about the people who have gathered to take away the testimony of the church. You realized there are those alive today working feverishly in 2020. They are gathering so that you and I can't gather in the future. You understand that, right? Do you really understand how dangerous this moment is that we're now living in? This darkened agenda is going after the voice of the church right now, ferociously going after it. And David goes on in verses 14 and 15 where he tells us this. My enemies come out at night snarling like vicious dogs. As they prowl the streets, they scavenge for food, but they go to sleep unsatisfied. Let the wicked not reach their objective, O God, and let them not find satisfaction in their sin any longer. Let me be clear, lest I be misunderstood, and I know some people might misunderstand this. We are not here to stand against persons or people. In Christ... You and I fight for the souls of all men, all women, and all children. I don't care what color they are. I don't care what socioeconomic class they come. Whatever their persuasion, whatever their, their entrapment is at the present time, and there's all kinds of entrapments out there, we fight for their souls no matter what. That's why we continually open the doors of this house and say, come on in. 
You don't have to have it together. You don't have to look churchy. You don't have to, it doesn't matter. You come on in. We care about your eternal soul. That's what we care about. And we will battle for that, ladies and gentlemen. That's what we're going to battle for. We recognize that many people's lives have been open to the powers of darkness. I talk to them all the time. Behind the doors of my office, they might say, well, Pastor, I need to let you know, when I was five or six, this happened to me. And when I got in my teenage years, I, I went off the rails and got into just unspeakable things, unspeakable things, clearly opening their heart and their mind to the powers of darkness. And because of that, we fight the age-old battle now of darkness attempting to swallow the testimony of Christ. And that, Bethesda, is where we stand at this particular moment. And though fully aware of those fighting against him, David said, but as for me, I will sing about your power. Each morning, I will sing with joy about your unfailing love. For you have been my refuge, a place of safety when I am in distress. As for me, I will sing of your power. I'm going to remind myself from the moment I wake up in the morning, God is still in control of this universe. I will sing aloud of your mercy. I will sing about it every morning. I will gather with the people of God as we're doing today and we will raise our voices in a shout of praise in the house of God until the victory is won, until the day you bring us home. We will be a people who know how to shout the glorious praise of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Come on, give him a shout of praise right now. Hallelujah! That's what David said. I'm going to be among the people who know how to shout the praises of God. Verse 17, O oh, my strength, to you I sing praises, for you, O oh God, are my refuge. The God who shows me unfailing love, God who shows me mercy. What an incredible opportunity ahead of us if we will pray. If we will throw our lives in with our prayers if we will believe that God is still willing to be merciful, we have an incredible opportunity ahead of us. It means, church, that we need to be faithful to pray for more and more of God's mercy on our day and generation. Can I get an amen to that? More and more radical transformations in our cities and in our towns, even to our villages. Because I still believe the scripture, no matter what's coming upon our day, no matter the battle that we're fighting, I still believe the scripture that we know so well that if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. Does anybody still believe God means that when he says it? So Bethesda, if we are to be the church God has called us to be, if we are to be the city on the hill, if we are to be the church on this hill, then we must never, ever, ever stop being a people of prayer. We must never allow ourselves to be bored with prayer. We must never allow ourselves to think God's not listening to us when we pray. We must never allow ourselves to diminish the value of prayer as a people and as an individual. And we can never stop being a people who are willing to shout our praises to the goodness of our God unashamedly. 
We must never rest in our own efforts to make ourselves comfortable and convenient. If that becomes a primary focus, make me feel good, whatever I've got to do, but be willing to be the hands and feet of Jesus extended to our day and to our generation for the glory of the name of Jesus. Would you put your hands together and bless the Lord? You can show me all your data and all your statistics. You can give me all your bad news about, well, here's what's really happening in the church. I've heard more bad, negative, depressing data and statistics in recent days than I ever want to hear. You can give me all your bad news. You can quote everything that's going wrong in our society around us. You can tell me all that's dying and in decline. But I must ask you then one question, sir, ma'am. Have you forgotten who God is? Have you forgotten that heaven is his throne and the earth is his footstool? Have you considered your calling? Have you forgotten that God chooses the weak? You think you you walked in here thinking that weakness disqualifies you. I'm telling you, it's probably the one thing that does qualify you in the kingdom of God. Don't forget that God chooses the weak. God chooses those who are nothing. God chooses the poor. God chooses the disenfranchised. God chooses the marginalized. God chooses those things that are nothing to bring to nothing everything that stands in its own strength. Have you forgotten who God is? Do you think he needs your strength? No. He needs nothing but your heart. Nothing but an openness to let him be God in your life. So I have some advice for you today. Put away your resume. Uh-uh. Put away all the bad feelings about yourself. I know you've messed up. I know you've made wrong, wrong choices. Join the club. Put away your bad feelings about yourself. None of these things matter. If you need to repent for something, repent before the Lord. Put away your failure. Why in the world are you wallowing in that? What good is it going to do for you going forward in in the name of Jesus from this point forward? Put away your past. Do what David did. Call for the garment of prayer and let God begin to speak to your heart again. And when David rose up from that place of prayer, he discovered supernatural strength coming back into his life. Oh, how many in the room today would love to feel God's power coming back into your life again? That supernatural Holy Spirit who has always been the strength of the church of the living God with the power of God in their hands, the power of God in their voice, the power of God in their eyes, the power of God in their hearts, the compassion of Christ in their being. Reaching and reaching and reaching with the power of God flowing through their lives. Let me tell you what I believe about where we're headed. I believe with all my heart that the last day move of God is going to be the whole church not some select few superstars any longer. That day, thank God, is over. It's going to be the church. I think the focus is coming off the platform and on into the pews. And I can't wait. The whole church, it's going to be you, it's going to be me, it's going to be every one of us. There is today a weak people who are going to rise again in this last day. You have thought your weakness disqualified you and knocked you out forever. There is a day when weak people are going to rise again in this last day. Well, Pastor Dan, you just don't, you don't get it. You don't know how weak I am. I bet I do.
I faced in the last 24 hours my own urge to give up. Walk away. Things can happen. You go, again, again. How much more of that do I take? How much more? How am I supposed to keep going with all that? I know exactly what weakness is. I know exactly. I'll match stories with you. But here's what I know. You say to me, Pastor Dan, you don't know how weak I am. And I'm going to say to you, you're not dead yet. Lazarus was dead and Jesus brought him back to life. And you're not dead yet. But we need to understand that spiritual awakening doesn't happen until we wake up and, oh, God of heaven, allow the church to wake up today and realize that we're in a battle. It is a righteous battle, and we're going to be on the right side of the battle we're going to wake up and realize that God is still God. He's still on the throne. He still rules this universe. And he gets the last word of what happens on this place. We are no weaker than any saints of any era in the history of the church. We are no weaker than the saints of any era in the history of the church. But Bethesda, it's time for the weak to rise. I said it's time for the weak to rise. And so I say, and now let the weak say, I am strong. Stand with me, please.